we made this. Welcome back, everyone, to a podcast all about the sounds of cinema and discussion about them between the notes, which is where we come in. I'm Tony Black. And I'm Sean Wilson. And this week, we bring you discussion of music from James Newton Howard, Carter Burwell, Daft Punk, and more, as we discuss the music of the films of 2010, flashing back 10 years from where we are today. So this was one of those ideas, Sean, as we still await the return fully of new movies and new scores potentially to really dig into and talk about a lot more. This was an idea about maybe looking back precisely a 10 year period and seeing what kind of gems cropped up uh, this time 10 years ago. It's been quite a fun little journey back into memory lane for me. How have you found it? Yeah, I've really enjoyed it. I think um, the idea of time has been on everyone's minds lately, hasn't it? Given what everyone's going through at the moment, um, everyone is a state in a, is in a state of perpetual reminiscence and thinking. Oh, you know, what, what, where, where was I a certain period of of time ago? And I, I, it's actually really nice looking back at the scores we picked. And I thought, blimey, these films are ten years old. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> um, looking at some of them, like How to Train Your Dragon, The Social Network, and everything, and I was. I was thinking at that point I mean I mean just personally I did I didn't have the job 10 years ago that I do now I'm now the editor for Sydney World's website I didn't have that job back then I was actually writing um radio jingles actually I was writing for radio advertising um in Torquay where I'm from but I just I remember just certain impressions from 10 years ago i mean i remember when and this isn't one of the films we're going to cover um inception i mean because we we've covered obviously covered inception on our um separate christopher nolan um, episode that people can check out but i just remember inception coming out thinking blimey you know christopher nolan is a real hero for creating an original blockbuster that isn't pegged to the batman mythology and drawing a huge audience as a result what a what a savior he is but yeah it's going through this list of film scores makes me realise what a rich period for film music 2010 was. It was amazing. I think it was a pretty good year. Absolutely, yeah. I think we've we've put we've we obviously you know we always compile like five scores each, and I think we've got some real great ones here. I mean, you know, you mentioned Inception, and that was something we talked about whether or not we talk about Inception again. But as you say, we talked about it not so long back on our Christopher Nolan episode, and it just felt a little bit redundant to maybe just go over all that again so if you want to hear us talk about inception go and listen to that episode i'd, I'd recommend um otherwise that would have definitely been on this list for one of us 100 <laughs> percent, you know <laughs> yeah and to be fair you know the top 10 films of the year in terms of gross not all of them are represented on this list so in that list you've got things like toy story 3 and a lot of these have really good scores as well but they didn't quite make our list so you've got toy story 3 harry potter and the deathly hallows part one Shrek Forever After, The Twilight Saga Eclipse, Iron Man 2, Tangled, Despicable Me. None of these are on our list, but they have, to varying degrees, pretty good scores as well. So we haven't necessarily gone for the biggest blockbuster hits, but I'd say we've gone for 10 
I'd say pretty recognisable choices that I'm going to guess most people will have seen over the years. And I, I mean, I'm wondering, Sean, how many of the of the ten that we've chosen, how many of them can you remember seeing at the cinema? I think I saw all of these. I'm, I'm pretty much I saw all of them, and uh, the the spreads and the st- the various styles of all these scores that we picked is really diverse. It's it's really eclectic, and what I think what we've done in this list is we've picked composers with both a classical bearing and also com- um, composers that have come from a more more of a pop oriented background as well, which is very 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 interesting. But yeah, I can remember seeing pretty much all of these films in the in the cinema, and I I remember that pretty much all of these scores made an impression on me in in one way uh, or another i spoke one of the one of the actual fascinating things about um about this is that <laughs> it draws uh, into um greater focus the fact that sometimes terrific scores can be written for dreadful films and there's there's a <laughs> there's yeah. a few contradictory examples like that on here of all there all are. the scores are gr- all of the scores are great but some of the films for which they were written were absolutely appalling <laughs> And, 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 you, and you know looking at the list you know exactly which ones I'm yeah. talking about <laughs> yeah one in particular one in particular that is a yes. renowned brilliant score for a dog shit film <laughs> so that'll be fun that'll be fun yeah. and I think pretty much all the composers we've picked here are all still working they're all still pretty well known they're all still 10 years later doing their thing which is great maybe some to a lesser degree than others but yeah it's a it's, it's a really really hopefully diverse and hopefully enjoyable list. And as always, we will have a Spotify playlist available with the selections. We've got them all. They're all on Spotify this time. So um, you're going to be able to listen to selections, a good couple of hours of music there from all of these scores. And I would encourage anyone to go and listen to them in full because all of these scores are in full terrific. And what, what I've just picked out a few different choice um, st- tracks from those. So there is a that's hours worth of great listening for you here yeah agreed and there is um i mean it's an interesting point actually about that you raised about whether these um composers are actually as ubiquitous as they once were i mean it's certainly there's at least one example on this list in the form of daft punk who um almost the anomaly on this list in that they they made this one score and they haven't done anything since but apparently they are now attached to a new dario argento film i was reading about that recently which i I, yeah i know right I, i didn't know about that and i was like oh that's interesting certain composers on this list made their film score uh debut not just daft punk but others and have now gone on to uh, establish very very successful collaborations with directors certain other composers have kind of solely um have started to identify solely with a particular genre we can get into that uh yeah it's um it's um, it's a really exciting list actually i'm looking forward to talking about this one yeah it's good fun it's gonna be it's gonna be really good so yeah make sure you check out our playlist um do as well uh if you're not already fully subscribed to the show do subscribe on apple uh podcasts or your podcast app of choice and if you could give us a little bit of a review somewhere anywhere ideally on apple unfortunately because apple control all um if you could do that (laughs) and uh, give us a little rating that'd be great uh just to get us better known in the the wonderful film score community so without further ado let's break into our uh 10 scores and start with one from you sean which is uh obviously and all these scores obviously are from the year 2010 so i don't have to say the year every time but the first one we're going for is 
John Powell's How to Train Your Dragon. Yeah, this is just an absolutely wonderful score. Oscar nominated uh, score for the uh, DreamWorks animation, which apparently was the first DreamWorks animation movie that John Powell had tackled on his own. He'd collaborated uh, on several other DreamWorks animations, but with other composers, for example, Hans Zimmer on uh, Kung Fu Panda. Uh, this was the first time he went it alone. So adapted from uh, Christina Cowell's uh, novel of the same name, and this subsequently has inspired uh, a three-film uh, DreamWorks uh, animated franchise. And How to Train Your Dragon is, is wonderful. It's it's a really good, rousing, stirring emotional story about a viking community called burke and the ongoing conflict that they have with uh, yeah, I know, right it's a great name I, I, isn't it yeah, yeah burke yeah. it's one of those they didn't, they didn't focus group that in a uk did no, they? no. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's a great it's one of my favorite um non-swear insult words that yeah. burke yeah burke. <laughs> <laughs> but it but it's interesting because i mean the word can also be ascribed to the main um character called hiccup who's voiced by jay baruchel who's a young young viking who absolutely is not into the whole uh dragon conflict thing he's much more kind of timid you know he's not a, he's not a big beefy viking uh, um unlike his father who's voiced by gerard butler uh but gerard then uh, butler, gerard butler. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he can't not do it again. gerard butler Uh, can i just say actually this is one of probably three films that i like gerard butler in although he doesn't actually appear in it um he's 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 actually his voice his voice actually works really really well for um for this character stoic the vast is the the name of the character and then Hiccup um, uh, shoot, um, uh, it comes across uh, a dragon that's been downed called um, Toothless, who might actually be the most adorable dragon in the history of cinema. He looks more like a cat. He's got like a kind of cat-like design to him. And uh, a friendship forms, and it's all about how, do, how does this friendship uh, transform the um, belief that humans and dragons need to be perpetually locked in conflict as, as enemies with each other. And it's a really, really wonderful film. It was a huge hit when it came out. And a lot of that is down to the uh, spectacular nature of John Powell's score, which I said was was Oscar-nominated. Uh, Powell, as I said, had worked extensively in animation before on, on like Kung Fu Panda and Robots and Chicken Run, on which he collaborated with uh, Harry Gregson-Williams. But this was something else entirely i mean having listened to this again uh the narrative flow in this score is brilliant it's a really well considered score it's really well put together there's an opening track called um this is burke which is kind of the suite of all the main well there's there's two main themes you've got the the flying theme which um uh soars during the the test drive track later on which is just magnificent but then you've got the kind of brass vocal theme which is the sort of dragon fighting theme the dragon conflict theme and the way that these two themes are variously kind of woven around each other and deconstructed and presented in different uh, arrangements is really quite amazing there's a track called uh, forbidden friendship which has got this kind of dreamy celtic new age sound to it which is very singular and what it does is it offers a palate cleanser in amidst all the big roaring like noisy um, action sequences which put forward like bagpipes and choir and and then so the, the the difference between light and shades and the quiet moments and the louder moments in this score is really really well done and there is a real storytelling progression through the score and as i've said when you listen to a film score in its own terms you want to be told you want that you want the narrative to be conveyed to you and I think this this score does it 
really tremendously well. All of the themes are brilliant and they were subsequently developed to superb effect in the second and third scores as well. One need only think of the opening track, Dragon Racing from How to Train Your Dragon 2, which is absolutely stupendous. Yeah, I, I, I love the way that Powell was loyal to the themes in this score. I love its sense of heart. Uh, it's a proper film score. It's got properly well-developed, memorable ideas to it, which strike a number of different tones. Yeah, I I can't say enough good things about the score. And it was robbed of the Oscar. I'll be honest about that. It was robbed. Yeah, what it lost to, we are going to cover on this on this episode. And and I really do love that score for different reasons. But yeah, I think in terms of this being a sweeping, com- complex really great piece of orchestration it's it's a shame because this this is this is that classically sort of scored kind of animated movie and yeah and you know i i only watched actually i only watched how to train your dragon for this podcast believe it or not i missed it 10 years ago haven't seen it since so i haven't seen the sequels yet but i've heard the score particularly for the third one um that came out last year i think didn't it I mean, they're they're be- it's beautiful music, absolutely beautiful music. So I was fairly new to the film, and I thought I thoroughly enjoyed it. You know, I thought it was very impressively done uh, film. That you know, a lot of a lot of non Pixar animated films these days don't quite cut the mustard. But I think this pretty much gets there. You know, even though it's DreamWorks, it's not that kind of perhaps top tier animation. And as a score, it definitely matches up. So. Yeah, I agree. I think it probably deserved it. I mean, it's 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 a story about inclusivity. It's a story that's got a very very strong moral message to it, and it's not one of those annoying um, superficial DreamWorks movies that drops in a lot of pop culture references that that sort of have dated as soon as you leave the cinema. There's a lot of bad DreamWorks animation movies. It's not like that. I mean, the fact that it's got a historical setting precludes it from being able to do that. Although it uses a lot of you know American um, voice actors, you know contemporary American voice actors. You've got the likes of Jonah Hill and Kristen Wiig thrown in there as well but it was an interesting thing to to, to go back to what I was saying earlier about how um, certain composers that we're talking about today have become identified with a certain uh, genre Uh, in the uh, years since John Powell has composed uh, the first How to Train Your Dragon he has almost exclusively worked in the realm of animation I interviewed John Powell for um, Den of Geek I think we might be able to put the interview in in the show notes if if we want if people want to read it yeah what he said to me was that he almost exclusively focuses on animation there because there is a wholesome inspiring feel-good sort of morally pure element to those kinds of movies and what he didn't like was he didn't like the fact that holly live action hollywood action movies were using violence as a kind of crutch to get out of storytelling uh, problems and i thought that was a very very candid him uh, thing for him to say and he 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 likes the um the moral purity of these kinds of movies. I mean, one can hear in all of the How to Train Your Dragon scores how thoroughly invested he is in it and how much heart and soul has been poured into it. And he's one of my favourite people to have interviewed, actually, although it was a very, very candid thing to admit the fact that he didn't... There were whole tranches of the industry for which he had scored that he didn't like. And he's now kind of narrowed his... He's narrowed his focus. But, I mean, if people want to check out my interview, they, they hopefully they can do that. Yeah, we will. We'll add that to the show notes. Absolutely, yeah, definitely, um, because uh, be a good addition to listening. Hopefully, listening to the music as well on the playlist if you haven't already. But I, I imagine a lot of people have listened to this score and and already love it. So, yeah, it's a good one to start off with. Absolutely. I'm going to move us into slightly different territory for my first one and talk about uh, True Grit, the remake by the Coen Brothers, uh, with a score by Carter Burwell, their regular collaborator. 
and he, I mean, uh, this this uh, it's a famous. Obviously, originally it was the uh, John Wayne in the original playing Rooster Cogburn, the uh, boozy lawman who uh, is hired in this case by uh, a fourteen-year-old farm girl, uh, Matty Ross, played by Haley Steinfeld. I think it was a debut actually, or it was the first film that really got her known. And they're chasing a, an outlaw who's killed her father, played by uh, Josh Brolin. And this is set in, in around the, the late 19th century, so it's like the 1870s, I think, like that. So it's it's a very sort of period piece in that sense. And, I mean, I, I did see the first True Grit years ago, but it's one I need to go back and watch. But I did really love this film. I thought it was a really great adaptation of that um, and remake of that story. And it really swept me along. And I, and I think the music had a big a big deal in terms of that, in terms of, of why. Because I think it really does immerse you into this kind of very melodic, but also tragic, American, pastoral, and also without it being fully church music, because that was something that they didn't they that they, they wanted to do, but it's not too it's not too intense. It's much more I think they described it as wanting it to be a, a, a both. It couldn't be soothing or uplifting, and at the same time, it couldn't be outwardly depressing. I think that's what they've said. Carter Burwell has said, and that's the kind of balance it strikes. And obviously, it uses memorably the uh, the hymn from eighteen eighty eight, "Leaning on the Everlasting Arms," which immediately makes me think of the Night of the Hunter straight mm, away. Yes, um, and Robert Mitchum's "Leaning." <laughs> oh, that's so that's so scary. That is wow. really terrifying. Brilliant, and one, that's one of my favourite films, Night of the Hunter. It's beaut, um, and I'd recommend. If you haven't seen the Night of the Hunter, guys, stop what you're doing, put this down, go and watch it. Because <laughs> <laughs> then, when you come back and listen to True Grit, you'll 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 think of that film. But yeah, I th- I think it, I think it's lovely. I think it's, there are points of real sort of danger and intensity, but there's so much of that. It really feels like you're on a journey in this sort of old west setting with those those balance of. Of, of tempos i mean yeah I, I i think it's great it's one of my favorite scores from this year yeah it, it is it's really great i mean see it's um carter burwell and the coen brothers have such a long-standing um uh, collaboration going uh way back to uh the likes of raising arizona in the, in the late 80s and i think carter burwell doesn't always get his due because very often the scores that he writes for the Coen brothers are variously kind of quirky and somber and they also incorporate lots of other they incorporate other people's music as well like this score does and apparently that's why it was disqualified from the the oscars uh this score i mean true grit the, the, was was nominated for lots and lots of oscars but the score wasn't one of them uh which is a shame but yeah that's interesting that we talked I, I, about the leaning on the everlasting arms i read an interview with him where he said that uh yeah he the, the approach for the score was informed by the um directly by the biblical portent of the original book by charles portis um, which the Coen brothers leaned on more heavily than the original John Wayne uh, movie because the John Wayne movie is just a kind of six shooting, um, you know, fairly hammy like Western, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's people regard it as a classic. I have to say it's not one of my favourite John Wayne films. I, I have to say I think this True Grit is one of the examples of where a remake is a lot better than the original. Um, it's much this this Coen Brothers version is much more pragmatic and somber, and it's grounded in a much earthier kind of reality than than the John Wayne one was. And I think the melancholy nature of the music, with its sense of biblical reckoning, is is really great. There are other hymns apparently hidden uh, threaded throughout the um, the score as well. 
it's a very, very beautiful score. I mean, it's interesting that the way that Carl Burwell takes other people's music and fashions it in the manner of a classic Western odyssey, it's probably one of Burwell's most lyrically attractive scores. And certainly, I think the irony being that the Coen brothers are known for their unpredictability and for you not quite knowing where the rug is going to be pulled out from underneath you and yet ironically this version of true grit is probably one of their most straight laced and outwardly entertaining <laughs> films <laughs> which is a bit weird yeah that is strange yeah <laughs> yeah that it were uh, maybe it proves that they should try that a little bit more <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah um maybe <laughs> but yeah i think i think you're right i think it is a better remake i think it's got a, it's got a really good cast and I just, I just think uh, Burwell's done some great stuff over the years. I mean, one I, I, I always it's not a Coen Brothers film, and it's not necessarily a brilliant film, but the one I think the, the score that really made me was rem- always made me remember him was probably the one I, I, I listened to when I was young, which was his score for Conspiracy Theory. Do you remember that film? Mm, yeah, the Mel, Mel Gibson. Yeah, the Richard Donner film, Mel Gibson and Julia Roberts, and it was you know the, the film's a bit hammy, but. I, I loved that film as a kid, and but the score is great. The Carter Burwell score, full of that kind of, and there's always the same kind. He's one of, another one of those uh, composers that you really know it's a Carter Burwell score because he he has distinctive things going on, and he, and he, and you, even you can hear that in True Grit, even though he does some really interesting, quite a, original stuff with that kind of him him church sort of music, and uh, which I think is great, and that's it makes this stand out even more. So. Yeah, I love this. This this, this is an example of, of of a score I think you can just kind of put on and have on, and it's just lovely music for the most part. And and that's that's something that that is a boon to it as well. So yeah, I uh, I really like this one. It's 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 really good. I suppose the, the the one thing we should say is that it's it's a very very powerful contrast with the Elmer Bernstein score from the original film. Uh, obviously, we we spoke about Elmer Bernstein uh, on our previous episode, which people can go and check out. That was much more of a a rousing western score in the mold of the magnificent seven and yeah this this is is um cosbell's effort is much more of a somber downbeat uh score but but arresting in its own sense yeah yeah beautifully put there absolutely can't think of a better way to to describe that really i think arresting is a good way to describe the next score in a very different way and this, this is my favourite score of 2010. In fact, this might be one of my favourite scores of the 2010s, quite honestly, the entire decade. And I think this is held in high regard by a lot of people. So the score to Tron Legacy by Daft Punk, as you mentioned earlier, perhaps the ultimate example of absolutely brilliant score, absolutely shite film (laughs) (laughs) see the thing was that that actually that actually wasn't the example that i was thinking of at the very beginning episode there's another film and another score that accompanies it on this list which is which is worse so i agree agree with that you're right you're right I, I, i don't necessarily think the score in that case is as good as this but the film is, is this the tron legacy is slightly better yeah absolutely than the the other film on this list but I think I just I suppose for me this is just that example of the, the, how different how much you can sometimes get, and obviously this is a sequel, isn't it, to the the, the nineteen eighty two Tron, the original, uh, and, and in theory should have been a lot better than it was, but th- it, it's an example of of really kind of doff film and a, just a fantastic score that just blows you away as soon as you listen to it. 
the, the score is is phenomenal. This was the debut score from Daft Punk, obviously. Uh, Thomas, uh, aka Thomas Bangalter and Guy Manuel de Homem Cristo, uh, the uh, helmeted sort of dance duo um, who um, better known for like, you know, harder, harder, better, faster, stronger, you know, per- perpetually on in the background, probably during my university years, actually. Yeah. <laughs> lots, of, yeah. lots of Daft Punk. Um, I imagine it was the same for you, right? You know, Daft Punk yeah. kind of this like on, omnipresent <laughs> thing. It was that, it was that song uh, around the world, or yes. around the world. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> I can just see the video. I can see the videos. I'm seeing that because he's just this geezer go in like a helmet going around like blocks, isn't it? Like a circular yeah, that's bike. It. Around the world. Okay, I'll stop around yeah. the world. <laughs> Almost turning into Owen Wilson. <laughs> around the world. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it's they. Yeah, definitely, absolutely brilliant music from those guys. It's, I mean, and, and one, I mean, I remember when this was um, announced, it's like Daft Punk are going to do a film school. That's very, very yeah. interesting. I mean, this, this was like the, 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 obviously directed by Joseph Kaczynski, mega budget Disney uh, sequel to like you said to the original Tron, uh, massively more expensive, lavishly staged, was um, th- th- it's so sort of complex in terms of its, of its visual effects that like Avatar, pre-production started way, way uh, in advance of the film's release several years before. And it's interesting that Daft Punk were actually brought on very early in the pre-production stages and they worked on this film for two years which is very unusual for um, any film composer to get that length of time normally a film composer one would imagine with a healthy schedule would get a few months uh, not in this case they were given two years so it's no wonder that the score is such a rich experience that mixes the symphonic orchestra which apparently was recorded at Air Lindhurst Studios in London with the synthetic dance arrangements that one would expect from Daft Punk. One must also credit orchestrator Joseph Trapanese, who apparently was very, very pivotal in bridging the divide between Daft Punk's normal musical voice and the needs of a film score, which, with which they were not familiar. They'd not done anything like this before. Although apparently... Um, uh, so Daft Punk had produced the um, soundtrack to the very, very controversial French film Irreversible, which is directed by Gaspar Noé, which is an incredibly brutal film, um, which had a very oppressive soundscape to it. I Similar to How to Train Your Dragon, the reason why this score works is because it's composed of very, very memorable and very identifiable themes, uh, building blocks. And although it it, it, it traverses that organic and uh, synthetic realm brilliantly, but the orchestra is at the heart of it. I think that's one of the, probably the thing that surprised me the most. Because when you think of, oh, Daft Punk are going to do a film score, you think it's going to sound almost entirely like that around the world <laughs> song that we just yeah. that we did that we yeah, just yeah. mentioned but it doesn't yeah. sound like that i mean what it <laughs> sounds like to me is it sounds like a cross between appropriately enough wendy carlos who scored the original tron who was one of the you know synthetic film score pioneers and somebody like jerry goldsmith who in his own way crisscrossed the the, the divide between the symphony orchestra and, and the electronic ensemble it sounds like a cross between those two and certainly you've got an incredibly um, beefy kind of brass led theme which you first hear in the overture which is very very Jerry Goldsmith but they're overladen with all these shimmering synth effects which are very Carlos and the way that uh, these principles extend throughout the rest of the score is really well done it's really intelligently developed and there are standalone tracks which do play more to Daft Punk strengths there's a track called D-Res which you can imagine being on in a club which is very kind of aggressive and pulse pounding and very electronic there 
is um, another track called Solar Solar, which is incredibly ambient and dreamy and kind of, and there's the word arresting. Um, all of these different tones that the score managed to hit is very impressive for, for a Dave score, very, very impressive. I mean, when you said that it's one of your favourite scores of the, of the 2010s, I'm inclined to agree with you, actually. I, 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 would, I would agree with that. It's a really accomplished score. I, I've, I've, just, I've, I've just played it so often. Like each, I've had it on rotation over the last ten years, frequently, and I, th- I think it's just some incredible stuff on there. Like, I think my favourite is probably Flynn Lives towards the end, which is this incredibly rousing, building heroic piece of music that is absolutely fantastic. Like, there's, there's, and it's, it's got such a varied mixture of that electronic stuff and the, yeah, that that big brass kind of you know, orchestral kind of thing going on. And it's a wonderful mix. It's one of the best mixtures of those kind of styles I think I've ever seen. And, and, and it's funny you should say about Goldsmith as well, because there is something that's out there on the internet, which I have to point out and I have to talk about, which I found a couple of years ago, and I will put in the show notes. Somebody put together a condensed version of Star Trek The Motion Picture, which is scored by Jerry Goldsmith and is my favourite film score of all time, as I may have mentioned on this podcast before. But they condensed it into like a 20-minute version of the motion picture set to the score to Tron Legacy. And it works brilliantly, Sean. I'll I'll send you this. It's amazing how well this music works to that film. I, I can't say anymore. I've just got to. I've just got. To, I'll put it in the show notes. It's called Star Trek Legacy. It's on. It's only on Vimeo, unfortunately. It's not on YouTube or anywhere like that. But but I would encourage anyone. It's only got twenty minutes. It's fam, it's amazing. So if anything proves that <laughs> that link, <laughs> I think that's what that's it. Because I th- I almost think you could port this music into all kinds of different films, and it would work really well. I think it, it's not just based on Tron. It's really sort of universal, I think. That's amazing. I didn't know about that. Yeah, please do send me that because I, I, I imagine the hybrid mixture of, of the Tron Legacy School. Yeah, I can see that working brilliantly for an environment like Star Trek. Yeah. It's so good. You know, because you've got the whole scenes of like when Spock goes on that spacewalk and he's going through Vija. And, and to Goldsmith music, you've got all this wonderful you know, ethereal sort of space music going on. But to this, you've got all the electronic sort of... And it's brilliant. It's so good. It's so, it's it's not as good as Goldsmith's original score. Nothing beats that for me. But I tell you what, this, I, would, I would absolutely lap up seeing the whole film set to the Tron Legacy score. I would... It's it's just it, it's just a, a it is a masterpiece. I really do think this is a masterpiece of a score, and I think I think it would probably top my if not top my scores of twenty ten of the of the decade. Then it would be up there. Yeah, and the, the the way the way that it captures that sense of of an or, the organic like the the, per, the the human being having gone into the organic gone into the virtual environment, in the game, the organic and the virtual is really dramatically accomplished. The the, the fact that they had two years to perfect it probably explains why the score is so good uh, would that most film composers were able to hone and fine-tune their scores across that length of time but that often doesn't happen because post-production schedules are often very very stressful very rushed and I, I imagine they were helped in this instance because I think the film I think principal photography shot for about two months but then the visual effects post-production I think took about 18 months which is kind of you know almost not too dissimilar to what happened with Avatar so therefore 
they had a lot of time to get the music right and yeah it's it's a it's a masterful piece of work Tron Legacy and speaking of Trapanese as well I think I'd point anyone to his score I think he was involved in the Tom Cruise film Oblivion which is not a very good film but the score to that's really good as well and his um his score his involvement I think particularly with the raid part two because there's some stunning stuff on there which is absolutely brilliant really intense action music but it it's just amazing so if you like this kind of stuff go and investigate joseph trapanese as well because he's got other stuff in the, in the bank there okay so my my next one moving on is now that i was wondering about this when you've talked about the the, the really rubbish film on this list i think <laughs> I think there's two, apart from Tron Legacy, which I, I think you maybe like a bit more than me, but I think it's a load of crap, really. But there's two others that are really, really bad movies. Now, I'm wondering <laughs> which one you mean. So, actually, no, tell a lie. There might be three, but there's definitely two. Now, is it the next one, or is it the one that's coming later? <laughs> both, it, it, by, both by the same composer. It's the one that's coming later. Right, I thought <laughs> maybe. Right, Although okay, this, this okay. one isn't very, this film isn't very good either that we're about to no. talk about. No, it's not. Um, okay, cool. So that, that's what I thought. So this one is The Tourist by James Newton Howard. Now, I don't know if anyone even really remembers The Tourist now. It's like, it, it's uh, Johnny Depp and Angelina Jolie in a kind of heisty, James Bondy kind of espionage story. Uh, directed by the brilliantly named Florian Henkel von Donnersmark, which I, I don't even believe is a real name, but there you go. Right. <laughs> it's it's like, incredible. <laughs> um, and it's it's a really sort of glossy, uh, you know, preppy kind of, supposedly sexy kind of adventure, which is just a load of old wank basically <laughs> it, is. it really is it really is it's just it's 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 just rubbish i can't even remember a lot about it to be honest but i do remember how good the score was and how much better the score is than the movie um and apparently it was it was originally gabriel yared who was scoring this and uh, he did he does have one particular contribution uh, which is a a piece called dance in f towards the end of the of the film which is really good but I, I, I really think James Newton Howard did some great stuff on this. And I can, I can see Yared like, doing a good job on this. I mean, he later did a beautiful score to a film called The Promise with um, Christian Bale, which I haven't seen the film, but the score is gorgeous. So I can see like why he would be a good fit for this kind of exotic, you know, aristocratic kind of spy caper movie. But yeah, Howard does a great job. And it's very different from the later score we're going to talk about, which we won't get into now. But I think it's, te- it's a testament to how well how good a composer he is and how on fire he kind of is generally that he's on this list twice and he's the only one who's on this list twice. Yeah, he's a very, very versatile composer. He's able to work through a host of different genres. Think of comedies like Dave, westerns like Wyatt Earp, big roaring action movies like Waterworld, um, period pastiche movies like Restoration. Uh, James Newton Howard is brilliant. And then there are the collaborations with M. Night Shyamalan that we'll get into shortly. Um, <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can sense the, the, impli- the, implicit, the implicit thing there that, I, that I've just said. Everybody um, knows what film we're going to talk about. Yeah, here, yeah, I think they? that was Let's the equivalent of a spoiler. Yeah, that, that was a spoiler, <laughs> even though I, I didn't actually mention the name of the movie. Um, I mean, the other thing with Newton Howard is that he can work very, very quickly. He's famous for that. He was brought in uh, at the 11th hour on Peter Jackson King, Peter Jackson's King Kong. 
to replace Howard Shaw because Howard Shaw was meant to do that. They, he then had creative differences with Peter Jackson. He walked. Uh, James Newton Howard was brought in with very little time and, and conjured a really terrific score for that. Um, yeah, the tourist, I mean, the best known for, I think, being roasted by Ricky Gervais at the Golden Globes that year, um, which was brutal, <laughs> um, really brutal. And he, he ripped it in front of Johnny Depp. And apparently Johnny Depp, um, back at the point where Johnny Depp still had a, a, a sense of humour, then appeared on Life's Too Short, the Ricky, the, um, um, do you remember that when when he, Johnny yeah. Depp appeared on Life's Too Short, and then they actually yeah. referred they actually referred to Ricky Gervais being nasty to him uh, and to his film? Um, that is literally the only memorable thing about the tourist. Uh, that I mean the fact that it's got one of the stupidest plot twists in in living memory. Um, that I guessed within about the first ten minutes. And then they try and spring that reveal on you. It's like, I was ahead of the game for the hundred minutes before this, you know, and <laughs> I was yeah. not, I want to say in smug, but the film is really dumb. And yeah, no, it just, is. It is. Yeah. It's, it's ridiculous, isn't it? And you think, okay, like, so you're trying to, you know, and all the way through the movie, I was kind of thinking, no, the film can't be that stupid. I can't have guessed it that early on. And I was like, oh no, I am right. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, oh, no, it, is. it is thick as shit it is, yeah, it is that yeah yeah the film is as silly as I think it is um, and frankly it didn't deserve the involvement of either Gabriel Yarrod or James Newton Howard both of whom are so far above this kind of material um, it's a testament to James Newton Howard that he is able to invest it with as much dignity as he does I think a lot of it is very much uh, James Newton Howard doing a, a John Powell impression with a lot of um, synthetic percussion and sort of choppy strings which actually when i listened to the score for the tourist again did remind me of newton howard's other other score for 2010 which was salt which was the other angelina jolie um movie <laughs> oh my um, god that film that film, <laughs> that film. Um, i there can i just tell you this right I, I, went, I went to see that film with a friend of mine and i mean that film's bobbins as well but we went to see that film and there's there's a scene in that film that I will never forget where Angela Jolly goes to this this apartment that's been burgled or something like that, and there's a guy there and she's having a conversation with him, and all these books have been cast on the floor, and uh, he, <laughs> he picks one up. She picks one up. And she looks it over, and the title of it is in big capital letters, "Spiders!" with an exclamation mark. <laughs> And I remember me and my friend just la- cried for about 10 minutes. And then all we did for about a year to each other was go, spiders! Like that. Is that because her husband in the film is an arachnid expert? I, I, yes. don't, I, don't, I don't remember that detail at all. I do not. I'm going to have to go and watch it again now just to keep an eye out for that. That's amazing. I think he's, yeah, some sort of arachnid, yeah, guy. Yeah. <laughs> he's got a book just called Spiders. spiders. <laughs> I mean... Amazing. That oh is worth. It's worth salty's crap, but it's worth it for that one scene, basically. But I mean, anyway, there's, ho- there's Hollywood yeah. shorthand, isn't there? There's Hollywood shorthand, and then there's that, which <laughs> is just like just ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, that's incredible. I mean, again, J- James Newton Howard didn't have a particularly good year in 2010, did he? I mean, three films, the third of which we're yet to talk about, none of which really deserved his um, his talents, but he did, he went above and beyond for all of them. And um, to take it back to the tourist, yeah, a lot of it is kind of is very much a kind of. 
lightweight John Powell, lots of um, jumpy electronics, and there are a lot of um, sort of choppy ostinato string arrangements, which again is what reminds me of Salt, albeit in this instance done in a much more comic realm. The the main um, memorable feature of the score is the love theme, which is gorgeous. I, I understand probably why you like the score so much because this love theme, the, the lilting theme with the accordion arrangement, although the film is set in Venice, not in Paris, but um, th- that is really beautiful and the loyalty to that is really well done and the the use of it during the final reveal which is meant to have a kind of ironically romantic effect because the music is meant to play against what you're watching and um all it makes me think is my god the the music is great the film is an absolute dog (laughs) (laughs) it is um and i can't believe it's from the director of the lives of others the Lives of Others was an incredible film and um, sort of controversially nabbed the um, foreign language film Oscar from Pan's Labyrinth. But that is a really terrific film. I think that was scored by Gabriel Yared, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it shows, as I said at the very beginning of this, film composers are remarkable for looking beyond the garbage that's being presented to them and thinking, right, I have to find inspiration for this. And they go above and beyond the call of duty. Again, to mention Jerry Goldsmith. Jerry Goldsmith was the master at doing that. Um, and James Newton had similarly has done it um, many, many times throughout his career. But yeah, a charming little score, I'd say. Yeah, yeah, I really like it. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a good good description of it, really. A charming in a different way, I, I suppose, but it may, maybe in a bit more of a sinister way is the next one for you. So you've gone for The Ghostwriter from uh, Alexandre Desplat. And this is obviously an adaptation of the um, the book by Robert Harris, The Ghost, uh, and it's it's a, a, a political thriller um, directed by uh, Roman Polanski, uh, starring Pierce Brosnan. I, I, I'm a big fan of Robert Harris. I've got all his books. I've loved him for years. He's writing, but I don't know if this film was a really particularly good adaptation of of that book, and. Uh, but but the score, I think, is is and it's the first time I've listened to it in years, probably in about nearly ten years since this was out, and the score's great. It's it's really terrific, isn't it? It's really atmospheric, and it's it's uh, Desplar is a is a brilliantly creative uh, musician. What I love about this is the way that it takes that it's a bit of a cliche that Bernard Herman-esque sense of burbling uh, menace lots of lots of choppy choppy strings that that propel you along but the instrumental colors that he uses in this score particularly the use of the bassoons uh, in the lower registers like the, the bassoon is used as a propulsive element through the main theme and it gives it almost gives it a kind of blackly comic like quirky feel to it which is very, very dangerous tightrope to walk because what you think is you, you're at the risk of undermining what is a, a, a film with nominally a serious intent, the idea that Ewan McGregor is the ghostwriter, he's gone to compile the memoirs of the um, uh, British PM, Pierce Brosnan, who's really good. Pierce Brosnan is really good in this, really smarmy and creepy and obviously not to be trusted. There were rumours that he was based on Tony Blair, although I think Pierce Brosnan played that down. And the score walks that very fine line between brilliantly accentuating the menace, but also playing up that very mordant Roman Polanski sense of humour, because Roman Polanski has got, you know, famous for that kind of slightly sadistic humour in, in a lot of his films, the way that he he toys with his characters. You think of things like Rosemary's Baby with that sense of paranoia. And Desplat plays that up because you're not quite sure whether Ewan McGregor is just a complete fish out of water or if there is actually something going on if there is a conspiracy going on and the way the score 
uses these instrumental colors to keep you off balance throughout you know should i be darkly amused at the main character's plight or should i be genuinely scared about what's going on is a very difficult thing to pull off and i think he does it with a real amount of style in this and there are some terrific action sequences um there's the chase on the ferry scene with some phenomenal string writing in it which is amazing i mean in that sense um it anticipates a Desplat score that we, we're not going to be talking about today, actually, which is Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 1, which also came out in 2010. And I think when you can hear a lot of the stylistics of the Ghost Rider in that score, because that's obviously a much darker Harry Potter score and Deathly Hallows Part 2 as well. He's a fabulous composer. Very, the way that this score could, this film could have been scored in a very, very generic plodding orchestral synth mix and he doesn't do that he it's it's very well mixed you can hear the the various facets of the orchestra all playing off each other to variously kind of quirky and threatening effect yeah one of the finest thriller scores of the last 10 years easily yeah and i feel like there are there have been like countless films kind of like this i mean one i watched recently was uh official secrets with kira knightley which is um it's all right, you know. It's a, it's okay, not a bad film, but the the score just there's nothing. It just fades away into the background. Like there's no there's no real interest there, and it feels like there's been all kinds of films that are along this sort of political thriller bent where a lot of the scores have just been very bland and have just sort of barely been around. But this one really, he goes to town. You know, he has real fun, like you say, creating that sort of Hermanesque, sort of dark tw- uh, world, sort of twisted aspect to it that's playful and and sinister and it's 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 like a whirly gig of all these different things it's great you know it's a lot of fun to listen to independent of the film even though the film is just not very good really um, um and um, i i would i would say to well for me anyway I, I just don't think it's as good as the book personally i'd recommend anyone read the book i mean i, I mean i actually i quite i really like the film i think i think the film i think the film is is to, I, I again having not read the book that's probably why i like the film because I, I, i'm not measuring the two up against each other but i do like the, the claustrophobic atmosphere of the of the film and i the also another Desplat instrumental to is the use of the chimes and the xylophones to create that that sort of tinkling sense of like okay what you know what what's actually going on here at the heart of the story and it creates that sense of uncertainty. I think the marriage of visuals and music in this instance is is really really great. Yeah, maybe I'll go back and revisit it. Maybe yeah, maybe it's one to look back on. So yeah, on to my next one then. I've gone for probably one of the most famous films from this year, The Social Network by David Fincher, uh, scored by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, which obviously it tells the uh, you know the story of the creation of Facebook and and you know stars Andrew Garfield and um, Jesse Eisenberg and focusing on Mark Zuckerberg and the you know origins of this uh, all dominant social media platform. Uh, and in, in fact, on my other podcast, Motion Pictures, to, it's the 10 year anniversary of the social network coming up. And I think we're going to do an episode about the social network because it's going to be fascinating to go back and watch that now 10 years on, given what Facebook has become in the last 10 years and given the role Zuckerberg now has in, in the world as this extremely controversial, divisive, uh, well, not even divisive. I think he's just controversial tech giant. Um, it'll be interesting to look back on this film. But I, I think... Because I haven't seen it in years, but I, I, I've always really liked the score, and I, I think I think like Reznor and Russ, they've gone on to do loads of different things, haven't they? Most recently, they they scored, they did brilliant work, I think, on HBO's Watchmen series. They are they are potentially a bit of a a, a Marmite sort of combination, 
you know, obviously Trent Reznor's from Nine Inch Nails, so he's got that, you know, background in this sort of electronic rock kind of thing. And and I, I think that they've they've brought this... I mean, I, you know, they did a brilliant score, I think, for um, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, which I love that film by David Fincher the year before, I think, or the year after, maybe. And then, you know, they scored Gone Girl and, and, and various other things. But I, I, So I'm a big fan of theirs. But I can understand why maybe people might not be drawn to the social network even though obviously it won the best it won the best original score at the Oscars that year I don't know I, I I'm gonna guess Sean that you're not as big a fan of this probably as me I'm gonna surprise you I'm actually more a fan of it now than I was 10 years ago so just to oh, okay. um, we, we were talking about the passage of time at the very beginning of this podcast we're talking about how time can shape your attitudes towards certain things and uh, 10 years ago, when I was less knowledgeable about this subject, my general attitude was if, if a film score isn't in the symphonic realm, it can't have that much value. And subsequently, in the 10 years since, I've come to appreciate the fact that uh, film scores are very amorphous. They can take on many different styles, many different tones, and they don't need to be uh, they don't need to be symphonically oriented. I mean, to go back to John Powell, he said that there is there's just as much artistry in um in the works of um aretha franklin as there is in beethoven's ninth that's one of the quotes from from my interview that i did with him and i think that um much as um i might have appreciated trent reznor and atticus ross's work on the social network at the time i was i was actually really annoyed that it won the oscar i'm still kind of annoyed that it won the oscar (laughs) to be honest um but in the 10 years since and having watched the film again recently and having listened to the score on its own terms again recently i can really appreciate what an achievement this is i mean the film is astonishing the the film is brilliant i'd i'd call it one of the best films of the last decade i really love david finch's style and uh, interestingly these two guys are now working on david finch's uh, next film which is mank which is about the screenwriter of citizen kane yeah. Um, That's coming out soon, isn't it? I think very, very soon in the next couple of months. I think. Yeah, um, can't wait for that. Yeah, likewise, and I think they're also working on Pixar's new movie Soul, which is very interesting. That's not something they've done. They've done before. They've never worked in the family friendly realms, so they are becoming increasingly versatile. But there is, there is a house style. Uh, there was a house style set down by the score for the social network because Trent Reznor hadn't done a film score prior to this, as far as I'm aware. Atticus Ross had. And it's interesting looking up the history of the social network score. Uh, Trent Reznor didn't want to do it because he'd just come off a tour and David Finch held out for him and then Trent Reznor eventually agreed. And what you get is, I think, a score that does a very, very good job of mixing in almost not too dissimilar to Tron Legacy, a sense of organic humanity with these kind of buzzing electronic impulses that speak of a very calculating, ruthless personality. So you've got something ultimately, ultimately compassionate and kind of cold and dark They're fighting with each other at the centre of this score, which is brilliant for uh, embodying the character of Mark Zuckerberg himself, brilliantly played by Jesse Eisenberg. I think the music does a tremendous job of getting underneath the skin of that character. And I remember when watching the film 10 years ago, when it came out in the cinema, I'm being absolutely blown away by it. And the, the opening scene, which is accompanied by a track called hand covers bruise, which is the first bit of music that you hear in the, in the film from um, Reznor and Ross, there is a piano motif. It's not really a theme. It's a motif that never really resolves itself. 
um it just kind of fades and then it's it's overlay it's it's laid over all these kind of ominous like buzzing electronic effects and what you what you get is the sense of a character on the cusp of something his that the fact is at the beginning of the movie he has been dumped by Rooney Mara's character he's drunk and then he translates that misogynist rage into a website that becomes the Facebook and then ultimately Facebook although you know one should should say that Aaron Sorkin's script I think takes a lot of liberties with the truth but one can imagine there is an emotional truth underlining it and <laughs> given given the way that Mark Zuckerberg has come across in the news in the last 10 years, I think the portrayal of him in the film probably isn't that far away from the truth, to be to be completely honest. But the the sense of, in the music, in the opening sequence, of a character whose sort of good and bad sides are competing with themselves and who will translate that kind of, that naivety and misogyny into something that will ultimately create a website that will change the entire world the way the music gets that is brilliant i think it's really well done and i i learned to appreciate more as well the various electronic effects throughout the score i mean a lot of it reminded me in some ways of like an 8-bit video game score (laughs) yeah did you think that as well yeah i can see what you mean now yeah there's definitely points where it has those beep, beep, boop, boop, boop kind of things yeah. going on. Definitely, yeah, like a platformer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I think that I, I would be surprised if that wasn't a dramatic device because the whole thing about the film was that it's got a, a, a re, it, 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 in a weird way, it's kind of a period film, but it's a period film that starts in 2003, so it's not that long ago. Although relative to where we are now, 2003 might as well be in another century. It might as well <laughs> be in another in another time zone yeah. altogether. And the the world of 2003 was very very different in terms of we didn't have social networking at that point. The internet was still relatively crude. I mean, I think probably dial up internet was probably still ju- just about being phased out by that point. And the somewhat sort of analog electronic nature of the of the score, the fact that it does sound like an eight bit score, I think that was probably deliberate. It's like it's a more innocent electronic age back in 2003 than what we've got now. And um, I mean, one should also mention the um, in the Hall of the Mountain King, the the electronic adaptation of the Pier Gint that they do as well during the Henley boat boat race sequence, which is great. Um, apparently, that was a direct instruction from David Fincher that that he wanted them to score it in the manner of Wendy Carlos again to take it back to Tron. Um, yeah, I, I I I appreciate the nuances of this score a lot more now than I did ten years ago. It. it didn't deserve the Oscar over How to Train Your Dragon, I don't think, but it's it's still very impressive. Well, I've I've just looked up the uh, the, the five nominees. So it, it beat How to Train Your Dragon, as you say. It beat 127 Hours by A. R. Rahman, mm. which I I watched that not so long back actually, a couple of weeks ago. That's uh, a lovely it, score. score it's it, it, it's it didn't really it didn't really stand out to me a vast amount, if I'm honest. So maybe it's one I need to listen to independently. But yeah, uh, and then Inception. Which by Hans Zimmer, which I'm I'm surprised didn't win in a way, uh, mm. and and the King's Speech by uh, Alexandra Desplat, which I think is a great score as well. So yeah, it's a strong category really. Quite a lot of of really good pieces of music on there. So and and quite different, you know, some of them quite different. But maybe, maybe it was just because the Social Network was such a was such a big movie and maybe considered such an important movie. You know, I mean, it was nominated for lots of other Oscars. You know, and it it didn't really win much else you know it, it won best adapted screenplay Aaron Sorkin but you know Fincher didn't win it didn't win best picture so maybe they were like well you know we need to give it a bit more <laughs> let's throw this at it 
I mean, I think probably what it is, because so much of the film is about um, people typing, people coding, people... It's often said that one of the least cinematic things you can do is show somebody at a computer, although obviously lots of films have have had to do that. And I think the way that, that Reznor and Ross get under the skin of that and they musically accompany the impulses that are behind that typing is probably maybe what the Oscars saw in it. I mean, it's, it's a phenomenal film, and I think it, it, it is it is given another layer of personality by, by the music, another layer of very complex, prickly personality by, by the music. Uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's superb. It's very good, yeah, absolutely. Speaking of superb, let's go back to the well of... Uh... <laughs> Let's go back to the well of James Newton Howard. Let's not go back to the well of the film. Because <laughs> in this case, um, Avatar The Last Airbender is about as far away from superb a film as you could possibly imagine. <laughs> However, the score is... I mean, I, I, I hadn't, I hadn't, I've seen the film once, which obviously is more than enough. <laughs> but, that's the, but the score... Um, the score, I'd forgotten how good it was. And I listened to it individually and i was like wow this is terrific stuff best score ever written for a truly dreadful film i would say i mean it could be yeah but but i'd put it up there i mean you could put any number of jerry goldsmith's um scores up there because he wrote some for some absolutely terrible films as well but yeah so um the last airbender yeah adapted from the um the nickelodeon series was such a disaster that apparently it, it killed off any other attempt to revitalize the Nickelodeon series that's how bad the film was because <laughs> um, <laughs> it offended and annoyed both uh, fans of the series and also people like me who just walked in casually and went what the fuck is this because it's just <laughs> like it's that's just exactly like, yeah that's exactly <laughs> it yeah everyone went what is what is this drivel that we are watching yeah and like and then astonishingly M. Night Shyamalan has been allowed to continue to make films in the wake of this I mean it's just um, unbelievable I mean I, I would <laughs> but he's thought, actually made better he's actually he's actually he's done good stuff he's done alright <laughs> like the, the the visit was okay the glass I thought was really quite good so he's actually he's starting to get back into it now but yeah this it's a wonder he got anything after this Definitely. I know it's it's genuinely uh, genuinely jaw dropping, and what's also jaw dropping is the fact that James Newton Howard somehow looked beyond what he was being presented with, or perhaps yeah. it was because what he was being presented with was so <laughs> dire that he thought, right, yeah. I really need to strain and I really need to stretch myself to give this movie the grandiosity that M. Night Shyamalan thinks it has, which it clearly doesn't. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, any movie in which you've got lines like, from birth, I always knew you were destined to be a bender. I mean, it's just... Like, I mean, for goodness sake. I mean, obviously, it's a movie that's... that's <laughs> it's, it's a Hollywood movie, so clearly that was lost in translation, so you can't entirely blame them for that. But I remember that was quoted everywhere when the film came out over yeah. here, that line. That line embodied how bad the film was. I, th- I think Peter Bradshaw in The Guardian might have cited it. Um, and Do you know, the, the, apparently the full line is this, because I've it, just found yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I knew from the first time I discovered you were a bender that you would realise your destiny. <laughs> So the line is actually even worse than I remember it being. So I, I, I was actually being soft on it there. I, I actually gave like my own interpretation of it. So blindly, this film is bad. Um, I mean, it's just, it's just. I mean, it costs apparently like two hundred million. It looks outrageously cheap. I mean, there, there is literally 
a set piece in which someone waves their arms around, lifts bits of CGI earth off the ground and flings it in people's faces. I mean, I'm like, come on. Like, just... And M. Night Shyamalan has got this really portentous way of, you know, in order to convey something, I will talk increasingly slowly. (laughs) That that is the way that M. Night Shyamalan directs actors. Sometimes he gets away with it in The Sixth Sense, which is a tremendous film and a great score from James Ian Howard. Other times like this, it's an absolute sort of shrieking disaster and i just think that um james newton howard is some kind of a genius for being able to come up with a score this good because what you have is a symphonic masterpiece in which um appropriately enough given the mystical um far eastern inflected setting of it you have a lot of emphasis on bowls and chimes and the the erhu which is a, a stringed instrument which gives a really ethereal sense of beauty so very very um harmonically rich score brilliantly mixed by sean murphy who's one of the best mixers in the um in the business he worked on jurassic park and many many other scores but you also have a, a strong thematic base I mean, you have like a two note almost like quest theme because the idea is that these two very annoying central characters have to go and find another really annoying um character who can control all four elements um and then he is the eponymous um uh, airbender um and so that two note theme propels the story forward but then alongside that you have the emergent um airbender theme which has just got this sense of grandiose portentous weight it might be the best thing that newton howard's ever done um and its emergence in the flow like water cue that might be the bet that might be the single greatest track of newton howard's career and blimey that's saying something and blimey is it saying something when you see how bad the film is <laughs> it's yeah. really quite astonishing um well the- i can i ju- can i just be really really pretentious and indulgent and quote yeah. myself because yeah. when, I, when i wrote when I, when I, when I, <laughs> oh we're doing that now are we we're doing that yeah we've, got, we, we've gone we've gone that far this has taken us that far this is my letterbox review like six years ago when I reviewed this. It's, it's it's not a long review, but this, I described it as this. Wide-eyed, gawping, chewing scenery, this is the cast, like they're in an episode of Garth Marenghi's Dark Place, only without knowing it's a comedy. <laughs> that's perfect. That I, out, I, I, out I'm actually spot. quite proud of that. Yeah, I, <laughs> that I think is, that's pretty on the money there. <laughs> that is absolutely spot on. I couldn't think of a better way of doing that. And when you put James Newton Howard's extraordinary score over it the score in its own terms is remarkable but it makes the film more silly because um somewhat perversely um actually if we're doing that um can i just to briefly go back to the tourist because there is a james newton howard link here i believe i described um the tourist which is the tourist was meant to have been riffing on the whole carrie grant audrey hepburn charade kind of thing so i described the tourist not as not so much carrie grant as carrie can't um which i which i i I, I was quite pleased with so that was a review i did for that so um, hey look you know we've gone down this rabbit hole now we might as well be as pretentious as hell and quite how great we are you know how witty we are I mean, I think if we if we're going to do pretentious, we need to call up M Night Shyamalan and sort of do some something for this podcast. Like maybe get him to do like a the portentous voiceover or, or something. But yeah, actually, yeah. no, let's not do that. Um, no, no. But yeah, um, James Newton Howard, a genius. This is probably the best score that's ever been written for a bad movie. It's really beautifully mixed, really detailed, really strong thematic ideas. There's another kind of percussive brass. 
um, theme for the Fire Nation, which is the, the the more warmongering bad guys in the film, as exemplified by Dev Patel, who apparently was really embarrassed to be in the movie. There was an interview <laughs> with him in which he, he actually went he went and apologised to fans of the TV series because he recognised what an absolute travesty of a film it was. Uh, so yeah, it's just... well, thank you know, thankfully he's gone on to much better, big, bigger and better things now, like uh, David Copperfield, which I watched the other yeah, day, and just that's lovely, lovely. really but lovely he's so film. Good in that. Yeah, so you know he's he survived intact, really. But you know, which is good. But yeah, the film is just—it's <laughs> just staggeringly bad. Like, I mean, I—I I, I remember Tron Legacy being rubbish, but I mean that—that that is Citizen Kane compared to this. It you is. know what I mean? This—this this is. Tr- I mean, it, it's one of those things where it—it's one of those films that is a bit. I suppose a bit like Battlefield Earth. You truly have to watch it to understand how terrible it is. And do you know what? I, I often I do genuinely often think, Sean, that some that watching films like this is good. It's good for people because when you when you're able to watch something like this, you truly understand what a great movie then is. Because if you've seen the worst and you've seen the absolute especially when it's big budget like this and and hundreds of millions or whatever have been thrown at it and then they, something so terrible on every level is made, it allows you to appreciate when you get a truly great piece of cinema, I, I really, I really would say to anybody, don't, don't always avoid terrible films because it's a good thing to watch them. And like you say, sometimes you get a dynamite score with it. I, I say this to people so often. I'm so glad you've said that. They're like, why did you go and see that film? Like, I went to go and see it in order to contextualize what a, a really good film is. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, I'm definitely. completely with you on that. The problem with this film is that, very often with a bad film you'll laugh at it because it's so cheesy the problem is this is a this is a terrible film that takes itself very very seriously as so many of Shyamalan's films do so you don't even laugh at it you sit there in sort of stupefied boredom (laughs) thinking like how on earth like would it have killed them to have thrown in a few jokes like M. Night Shyamalan doesn't do that but I, I mean I will say he has elicited fine scores from James Newton Howard pretty consistently on all the films. Oh, they yeah. haven't worked together recently, but Definitely. you think of scores like The Village with its wavering like fiddle solos. The Village is a lovely score um, and, and menacing as well. Yes. Unbreakable yes, um, is, is a masterpiece of a score. I, I love that score. It's it, that's brilliant, and I mean, Lady in the Water with its glassy choral accents, which you know, um, you know, I think was um, described by more than one critic as a damp plop of a film. Um, <laughs> it's, just like, it's like, have we been mean yeah. enough to M. Night Shyamalan yet? I don't know if we have. Like... Well, yeah, we should just, yeah, we should just stop now before we start calling him what Mark Kermo calls him, M. Night Shame about the last film. <laughs> that's very good. <laughs> Which, as I say, isn't necessarily true anymore because I think the last three films he's made have been pretty good, really. You know, I, I could say, I thought Glass was surprisingly good. You know, Split was pretty decent. And I was disappointed, actually, that, that James Newton Howard didn't come back and score the other two of the Unbreakable mm. Trilogy films, as it's turned out now. Because I think he'd have done amazing stuff on Glass. You could have had... Because you did, you did get some of the, you know, the Mr. Glass theme running through that and everything. But it wasn't as good. You know, it's not. it was not as good as, as what James Newton Howard would have done. So it's a shame, really, that the budget didn't stretch or, you know, he, he was too busy or whatever. Because to have an Unbreakable Trilogy in that sense would have been fantastic from him. But... You know, there you go. Um, we've got, we've at least got the last Airbender, <laughs> which is a brilliant score. So yeah, let, definitely. Let's, let's let that particular <laughs> fart waft out of the room now. Show it. Just, just get rid of it. Like, just. But definitely go and listen to the score because the score is fab. Absolutely, just never ever watch the film ever. 
Trust me. <laughs> uh, well, no, no, do. Do watch it, and then you'll know what a great film yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, as we've said. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> moving on to a better film, to be fair. Uh, this one's a quieter, perhaps less well-known film, Never Let Me Go, uh, scored by Rachel Portman. This is the film directed by Mark Romanek, um, written by Alex Garland from Kazuo Ishiguro's novel. So quite a pedigree involved there, really. Uh, stars Kerry Mulligan, Kira Knightley, Andrew Garfield. Again, really good cast. It's it's a it's a strange film. It's kind of like it's it's sort of about a you know a sort of a love triangle between you know these characters. But it's 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 a little bit sci-fi. You know, it's sort of that. There's a, I don't want to say too much in case people haven't seen it, but the stuff about like life extension, clones, but it's not it's not a particularly it's not a big science fiction story. It's much more of a, a strange romance, which I suppose fits sort of Ishiguro's kind of the way he does things, you know. Um, but I think Rachel Portman's score for this is beautiful. You know, it's a really it's a really lovely melodic uh, piece that really I think really taps into those you know themes about. You know that 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 kind of romantic attachment, and you know, hints maybe a little bit at the uh, the more sci-fi ideas going on in there. I'm really glad you picked this film because I think this is a tremendously underrated film and a brilliant one as well. It's a, um, it's a good film, yeah. It's really, really good. It's a really good adaptation of the novel, although there are certain things that are changed about it. Yeah, I think that you're right. It, it, it's it's a sci-fi film without the sci-fi trappings, and it's got. Um, a kind of quaint, like oldie worldy, uh, analog atmosphere with uh, a limited number of locations and a limited number of uh, cast members, all of whom I have to say are terrific. Um, Kerry Mulligan and Andrew Garford are unsp- unsurprisingly brilliant. The real standout is Kira Knightley, who I, I remember watching Kira Knightley in this at a point where I was still a little bit cynical about her acting abilities. I thought, wow, I'm going to have to stop doing that now because. She's really good as this brittle, not altogether pleasant character in it, quite bitter. Um, and the score is, as you said, very, very important. The mo- as I said, the movie has got an analogue, organic sensibility. You get a sense of the appalling fate that is awaiting the three characters in the film. I won't give away what it is for those who haven't seen it, but there is a sense of portent and reckoning the fact that these three young people played by the various actors that I've just cited are on course for a dreadful fate but the the environment in which they operate is very normal there are a lot of um there's a lot of um the, the beginning of the film takes place at a big country school which could be ripped straight from the life as we know it there are also um various sequences filmed in the countryside there's a sequence filmed at Clevedon pier which is a, a, a beautiful um pier i live in bristol that's not far away from me and um, it's it's a lovely spot. So it's a recognisable world, yet an unrecognisable world at the same time, because you get a sense there is something going on in the background that is appalling, but you can't quite get a bead on it until it's too late. Um, and the score is, is breathtaking. I mean, Rachel Portman, I believe, was the first um, woman to win an Oscar, uh, I think, for Emma back in 1996. And she's got a, a very, very clearly defined house style, very elegant, uh, very classical, very British, I think very English, probably more more specifically, um, definitely working in the realm, uh, coming off the realm of uh, the likes of uh, Vaughan Williams and masters like that. And one can hear that in scores for like Emma and the side house rules and, and things like that. But... What I love about this score is that it's much more, um, whereas Rachel Portman's scores are very often quite cheerful and quite optimistic, this is much more uh, melancholy. Um, I think it's a lot darker and I think it's got more weight to it. 
it is it is purely about suggesting the the awful fate that is awaiting the characters and there's a lot of emphasis on um low register kind of cello and double bass arrangements which is quite overwhelmingly sad i mean i did read a few criticisms of the score that maybe the the, the music tells you too much i don't necessarily think that's the case i think that the score has an operatic sensibility that's that that is very well tailored to the movie and credit to Mark Romanek for eliciting such a fine score. And there is in the climactic scene, uh, again, I won't give away the particulars of it. There is a track called we all complete, which just reached this crescendo of just sadness um, with Kerry Mulligan giving a, a really, really fabulous performance. So yeah, I'm, I'm actually, I'm really glad you picked this. I forgot this was a 2010 film. Actually, I might've seen it, early on in 2011 so i might not actually have seen this in 2010 i might have seen it a couple of months later but yeah really great choice i think it did open here in the very the very start of 2011 to be fair i I think it was yeah a limited release in the u.s in uh, the autumn of 2010 so it's yeah we didn't see this quite in 2020 uh, 2010 itself but it's it's a 2010 movie so hence why i thought i'd throw it in there but it's yeah it's a real it's one i need to watch again and I, I need to read the novel i think my wife's got the novel because she's got quite a bit of ishiguro so uh yeah i need to read the novel and then watch the film again because it's been some years but it is a beautiful piece of music absolutely so your last choice is again another film i would say is a bit rubbish but has a <laughs> has a really good score you've gone for a theme here <laughs> so your choices um but uh this one isn't as bad as the last airbender this is uh Tim Burton's Alice in Wonderland, the first one, with a score, obviously, by Danny Elfman. And I mean, you know, this is all a little bit, it's pointless even trying to describe this in detail. Everybody knows the story of Alice in Wonderland. And everybody knows, really, that if Tim Burton's going to do a movie, pretty much you're guaranteed Danny Elfman is going to score it. Even, you know, going back to, you know, Edward Scissorhands onwards, you know, and those kind of films. And they've done so many fantastic collaborations together even when maybe Burton's films, because I, I really do think Tim Burton is a Marmite filmmaker. I think sometimes he's great, sometimes he's terrible. And quite often, actually, he's in, he's in the middle, quite frankly. He's quite average. But he is unique. And, he's, and the music that he's conjured for his films is deliberately fantastical and whimsical. And, you know, again, Danny Elfman is one of those composers who... You know, you know a Danny Elfman score, and when you get a Danny Elfman and Tim Burton collaboration, you're pretty much guaranteed it's going to be pretty good, I think. And and I'd say this is no exception. Yeah, and one need only play a few bars of a Danny Elfman score, and you'd recognise it as a Danny Elfman score. There is uh, there is an emphasis on certain instrumental stylistics, like chimes, a choir. I mean, you don't get a Danny Elfman score without a choir. They go together like ham and eggs. You know, it's kind of that they are linked. Yeah. Um, very, very um, almost sort of fairy tale prancing like brass rhythms, string rhythms, all very, very singular. As you said, going back to the likes of um, Edward Scissorhands and Batman. Obviously, before that, I mean, things like Pee Wee's Big Adventure and Beetlejuice and things. When you said that um, Alice in Wonderland perhaps isn't quite as bad as The Last Airbender, I'll tell you what, it's not far off. Uh, it's I, <laughs> yeah, I'm being I, generous. Yeah, yeah, you are being yeah, you are being generous because I I'm generally a big fan of Tim Burton, but I thought this was um a, a complete mess of a film. I I really didn't like it at all, and it's very depressing that it took something like a billion dollars at the box office. Um, and at the time, I believe it became like the fifth highest grossing movie of all time. I was like, my god, that's miserable news. Um. All the other superior films that deserve to claim that success, and this is up there. 
Um, I what I really didn't like about it was that it, it didn't have that practical tactility that you would expect from a Tim Burton movie. The thing about Tim Burton movies is that Tim Burton creates worlds that are practical and organic, or he, at least he did up until a certain point. You think of the forest in Sleepy Hollow, all of that was done on a set. There was no green screen. Um, and you think how brilliantly immersive and terrifying Sleepy Hollow was. You think of the... Um, the cookie factory in um, Edward Scissorhands with all the um, the robots, the, the, you know, the faces going up and down. There's a whim- There's often a whimsy to Tim Burton's film. There was no whimsy in this. There was just this horrible sort of green screen CGI just slathered all over everything. And I, I was watching it thinking, am I watching a George Lucas movie? I actually did, <laughs> gen- and that's not a good yeah. thing. Um, and I thought it was just visually ugly. It was way, way too busy in terms of its visual effects. There are so many visual effects that I became numb to it, and the movie ceased to have any kind of magic whatsoever. And I think that the um, uh, uh, it's, it's not that I want to turn this into a diatribe against the movie because I understand that we are here to talk about the <laughs> the music, but I'll get to that. Um, and I believe I can't remember who it was who wrote a review for it. Was that it, it? It's the biggest affront to um, Lewis Carroll and nonsense literature, precisely because the film makes sense, and that is it. That is that is exactly it. That the whole point of Alice in Wonderland, the original source, was that it was nonsense literature. It was meant to be befuddling and confounding, but there was some kind of an emotional truth that you had to read between the lines to try and get. Whereas what Tim Burton does with this is he creates a saviour narrative in which you have a girl played by Mia Vashkovska who disappears down the rabbit hole and follows the most kind of bog standard Hollywood art to become a kind of sword swinging heroine. And I just think that that is it. That, that is why it doesn't work. It betrays the essence of the storyline and it betrays the essence of the source material. So again, like James Newton Howard, full credit to Danny Elfman for looking beyond the nonsense that he was presented with and for actually conjuring a score that is spectacular i think it's one of danny elfman's best scores for tim burton again it runs completely contrary to the quality of the movie which is one of the the ironies what danny elfman does really superbly is he honors the spirit of lewis carroll better than tim burton does because the main theme for alice is a a vocal um performance it's 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 a poem that is sung by a, a boys choir which is adorned by the usual um, Danny Elfman like brass strings xylophone pipe organ but there there is a choir that sings about Alice's destiny and that theme is then deconstructed throughout the rest of the school you get fragments of it um, either standalone fragments or bits of it that are incorporated into music that's variously abstract and weird think of the, the whole like drink me sequence which has got a kind of Indian sitar vibe to it all the scenes with the caterpillar voice by Alan Rickman which are kind of woozy and strange but then you've got some real um blustering action sequences which are very much got in the post the modern day danny elfman post plant of the apes mold he's really he's a really good action composer i mean he's obviously done the likes of spider-man and, and things and batman but yeah i i the score is terrific it's it's like house training a dragon it's got a real it's got a clutch of central ideas that are really well developed although in this instance i think this score is more of a it's more of a one theme score and what you can do with that theme and it communicates more emotional purity than the visuals do, which I think is odd. 
<laughs> and I'm, um, I'm kind of at a loss to explain why that often happens in film music. Why is it that I can appreciate the music on its own terms and I might just be able to appreciate the music in context of the film, yet I end up hating the film as well? <laughs> it's, kind of, it's really weird. I, I just think, I just think it just proves that you can't always... You could, the two don't always marry together. You don't always just get an amazing score that fits a brilliant movie. And, and you know, as we've said a few times in this episode, and I, yeah, I, I think everything you've said really about this, I'd agree with, to be honest. I, it, 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 the whole Alice in Wonderland, and, and you know, I, I don't even think I bothered watching the sequel, Look Through the Looking Glass. I, I don't even think I could be asked because I thought it's going to be the same. <laughs> it's going to be much the same, you know, isn't it really? And it's just that kind of, I get the same kind of vibe with the Pirates of the Caribbean films. It's just that grim, heavy CGI, unfunny, narratively all over the shop, kind of overblown rubbish. When you could do something much, much more interesting and focused, and you know, better written ultimately from the ground up. Because you know, Burton's a visual stylist in many ways. You know, the 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 way he creates his world is fascinating. But in terms of this. Yeah, it's just it's too artificial. It's too, and it it you know it just doesn't it doesn't come alive it, in any way. What it is? It's sterile. It's really sterile, and it's airless. And yet, the irony of the score is the score is very organic. The score is very rich. It's got a real harmonic sense. Again, like like all the other scores mentioned, it's really well mixed. And the 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 the, the, the dynamic mixture between the various vocal arrangements, be they kind of sung choir or or a sung poem, and then the pipe organ and the strings and the mixture between music that's variously attractive and thrilling, threatening, and whatever, is really well done. That just runs. It's completely counterintuitive to the plasticized nature of the film itself which is really weird i mean i don't know if you've seen um the uh, honest trailers channel from screen junkies i don't know if you've seen that they do they do narrated takedowns of great films. some some of the films they take down in really savage fashion some of the films are celebrated but in the case of alice in wonderland they really took it to task and um they um john bailey does the voiceover he goes uh Roll your eyes at the world's least inspired casting choice as Johnny Depp plays a pasty weirdo. And it's kind of like that. That, <laughs> is, kind of, that is it. That's <laughs> exactly it. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's exactly what it is. Yeah, you know, it, and yeah, he's just become a walking cliche of himself. He has. Johnny Depp, which is a shame. <laughs> you know, it, and that, that's the thing. It's just. Yeah. So yeah, the, the, this, 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 yeah this film is, is no good. But yeah, great score. Great score set to it. Let's talk about the last one then. And I, I, I deliberately ended on this one because I think this is one of the best films of the year in 2010. And it's a, it's a fantastic score. This is uh, Black Swan by, uh, well, the score's by Clint Mansell. The film is by Darren Aronofsky. Uh, a really dark tale, Natalie Portman as a, uh, a ballerina. And it's a really sinister sort of thriller set around that kind of, you know, world of performance. And... Mansell's score is entirely based on Swan Lake by Tchaikovsky. So one of the most famous, you know, uh, pieces of music ever. Uh, but he does significant changes to it and he infuses it with, um, you know, synthetic aspects and, you know, blends it all together in this rousing, rousing kind of conclusion, particularly when you get to the last track, Perfection, which is just this incredible combination of you know, dark... Mansellian kind of themes and the Tchaikovsky epic conclusion to Swan Lake. Um, 
I, 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 I don't know. I don't know what you think about the. I don't think I've ever heard what you think about Swan Lake. But I, I love this film completely, and the score has always completely enraptured me. Yeah, I love that adjective Mansellian. That's brilliant. Yeah, I think um, <laughs> yeah. It, it's right as well because Clint Mansell's got a very, very distinctive uh, sensibility in his film scores. Uh, like Daft Punk, he came out of um, pop music. Uh, obviously, pop will pop will eat itself. Um, I believe was he the front man for that, or maybe the guitarist? Um, he was. He was. He was with them. Um, and subsequently, Clint Mansell's music has got a very, very kind of hard, often a very hard-edged, like rocky, rock-infused vibe. To I me, mean, think of things like you know, Requiem for a Dream, which is very experimental. Um, that that those principles have informed a lot of his works for Darren Aronofsky. So this is interesting because what he's doing is you've got a collision between one of one of, if not the most famous ballets of all time, and um, a very very singular modernistic composer who's known for experimental avant garde uh, textures. And I think the two things can combine together very very well. It's almost interesting, almost like the Social Network. What you've got is um, a sense of the organic traditional ballet and the synthetic contemporary tone of Mansell and the way that these two things do a dance around each other in the manner of um, the idea of the film that Natalie Portman's character, you know, the whole white swan, black swan thing. Uh, yeah, I, it's it's a really, really interesting, really interesting, really compelling score. And as it darkens, it gets more and more interesting because that's when Mansell's own voice starts to take over more and more. And you get more of a sense of the contrast as Natalie Portman's character slides toward her her, her inevitably tragic, violent uh, demise. Those principles start to clash more and more and it becomes harder to unpick what's Tchaikovsky and what's Mansell, which is deliberate. And I think that makes it very compelling to listen to. It's another score that apparently was discredited from the Oscars because there was too much um, music derived from another source, which is a shame. Um, I mean, the film itself is very disturbing. It's a great film. It's a very disturbing, I think, very creepy, um, very intense film for which Natalie Portman, I think, deservedly got the Oscar. She's tremendous in it. Um, but yeah, I, I, I yeah. find it, 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 it isn't it? An un, it's an un, it's an impressive film, isn't it? and the music makes it more claustrophobic, definitely. Yeah, yeah. It's I mean, it's it's a bit of, it's a bit of an uncanny film, and it's not one of those. It's not an easy watch in a way, you know. It's 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 a strange film, but that's Aronofsky for you. You know, this is the guy who went on to you know have rock monsters in Noah. So, yeah, that's, it's, <laughs> yeah. he's, not, he's, he's a strange guy, um, but he's brilliant, you know, and and frequently brilliant. And I think Black Swan is one of his best, and yeah, it's just a, a wonderful, you know, sort of darkly twisted version of Swan Lake that you get in this music, and you know that blend of that of the classical, the truly classical style with. Yeah, you know, what Mansell brings to it is fantastic. So it's a great, it's a great score. Can you mention Noah there? I mean, the other thing about Noah was you had Ray Winston go, "Get out here, Noah, you slag!" Like that, yeah, pretty much. Like <laughs> there's a lot of that, a lot of that going on in it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I'd forgotten about that. <laughs> I might have to go back and watch Noah because I remember watching Noah, thinking this is mental. But I, I, I may, maybe need to go back and watch it uh, again just for the Winston. Uh, we're still gonna hit you, Slag. Oh well. On, on that note, I think yeah, we we'll uh, we'll we'll draw a line under the under this. And I, I had to finish with a, with a really good one. You know, I had to finish with a really good score. Uh, even though we've talked about some dire movies, I, mean, <laughs> I suppose I'd I'd finish by asking you, Sean, really, what you think about how the decade went. You know, we're sitting here in 2010, the middle of 2010. 
No, we're not. We're sitting. We're sitting here. <laughs> we've actually forgotten what time it is. I mean, we've, let's face yeah. it, everyone has. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've time travelled. We're sitting here in the middle of 2020. So we've had 10 years of scores and films. I mean, what do you think about the decade as a whole? Do you think that the 2010s created some really great music? I mean, I, I, I do. I think, I think we've had some spectacular movies and we've had some spectacular scores along the way. Yeah, I, th- I think it's been very interesting. I think, um, to take it back even further, from the, the 2000s, the Hans Zimmer school of scoring action movies really took over to the dismay of a lot of film score fans like me who prefer the kind of slightly more organic traditional approach i think that approach started to come back in more and more throughout the 2010s if you think of um what alan silvestri did with the likes of the avengers and then alexandre desplat with godzilla that 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 style has started to, to i think start to come back in that relentless um, Hans Zimmer bombast and I don't want to rag on Hans Zimmer because he is one of my favourite film composers but that's the side of his personality the musical personality that I don't really like and I, I don't like the way that that has shaped a lot of action music I think we have got more back into that traditional mould I think one of the things that has happened with film scores in the last 10 to 15 years is that as films have become more franchise and merchandise led there are a lot more invested parties not just in the films but in the music and i think there are a lot more masters that composers now have to answer to particularly as as comic book as i said comic book franchise films have started to take over increasingly in the last 10 years with the development of the mcu and then the dc extended universe that i think has made the job of film composers a lot harder um there are a lot of um, people to please schedules have become more and more pressured um but i think there in the last decade there was um a remarkable amount of innovation uh there were a remarkable plethora of new and old voices that were established and i think that things are more optimistic about film music than i think is generally given credit for um, I mean, I know I often say about, for example, Jerry Goldsmith, you don't get scores of this calibre anymore. And you might not get scores quite of that calibre, but you're getting things that aren't far off. Um, and I, yeah, I look forward to seeing what this decade is going to bring, frankly. Yeah, I, th- I think I think we do some really good, fascinating stuff and that builds on a lot of these things. I think I think you're absolutely right in your summation there. I think 2010s was a pretty good, pretty good decade. There was some great stuff. And this was a good start. 2010 was a good start. So it's been really fun to pick through some of these uh, particular <laughs> gems <laughs> for <laughs> not such gems of movies. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's been great. And I think when we come back next, Sean, I think we might finally have Tenet here. Oh, so, that's me breathing a sigh of relief. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, at last. Yeah. So we hopefully will have a new score, a big new score from Ludwig Jorensen to finally talk about. So we'll we'll see how that goes. Uh, we might well get into that in our next episode. But uh, we shall see. We'll see what happens. But until then, uh, thank you for joining us for another episode. Remember, we're part of the We Made This Podcast Network uh, and the music of uh, the best of 2010 is Norway discussing. So we'll give you a little taste about what else is on the network in a second. But until then, we hope you enjoy the film music we've discussed and listen to our playlist. Um, We hope you're still well and you're staying safe. And uh, we'll see you next time when we discuss the music of film between the notes. Elsewhere on We Made This. Ask us about Loom, a point-and-click podcast. Because the, the the other PC kind of things were much more expensive. 
to buy. I mean, the Amiga wasn't cheap either. So you, you tended to play these things, you know, in a way, it almost meant that point-and-click adventure games, which weren't on the consoles, were they really, back then? They were more the... No. They, they, were, they were a bit more expensive to play, I think, back then. Yeah, I, 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 can, I can remember, I think... Um, like uh, I was at uh, my friend from primary school had a NES and he had my Maniac Mansion on the uh, NES really yeah would it have been the same was it exactly the same like style though yeah yeah because I think you had to use the, I think you used the cursor to move the well no the joypad to move the cursor I and stuff I didn't know and, they had the, on uh, like a console that far back because obviously it's much more common now isn't it that you have them on consoles and oh yeah 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 frame to frame is because they thrive on an underclass and yet the uh, in order for the Kims to want to aspire themselves families like the Parks needs to exist Have in order so they yeah. can work their way up yeah and it's, I mean it's, I, I sort of steered you away from politics earlier but um, yeah. it, it, it's ultimate capitalism isn't it that's, that's what we're being shown here it's the, the tipping point of, of capitalism in that very few have a lot and a lot have very little. Free with this month's issue. Best of all the Britpop bands for me, I reckon. Although these days, listening back to the lyrics, Jarvis does come off as a little bit of a sex pest. Yeah. A little. <laughs> um, just, just a lot. Yeah. I, I can't think of any other vocalist that spends so much time getting up close to the mic and going, <laughs> a lot of his songs are about cracking onto someone else's girlfriend because he doesn't think that their partner is is good enough for them, and he would do better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Check out all of these shows and more on the We Made This Podcast Network. Between the Notes is produced and edited by Tony Black, who hosts alongside Sean Wilson. You can find Tony on Twitter at AJBlackWriter and Sean on Twitter at SeanO22. You can find Between the Notes on Twitter at BTW underscore notes, on iTunes, your podcast app of choice, on Spotify, Stitcher and on Spreaker, where the show is part of the We Made This Podcast Network. For more podcasts all about TV, film, books, music and popular culture in general, you can find We Made This on Facebook and on Twitter at We Made This Pod. Thanks for listening. Bye.